Let's talk about that speech with Claire and Rachel. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Let's Talk About Speech podcast. I'm Rachel. And I'm Claire. And we're back for another episode. Just a reminder that you can find all of our brand new resource guides on our Teachers Pay Teachers account. So if you need to check that out, go to our Instagram and you can find the link there. So today on the podcast, we have Dr. Scott Yaros, who we are so excited to talk to. Scott, thank you so much for being on our podcast today. Thanks for having me on, Claire. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess we just want to hear a little bit about you to start off, um, a little about your background as an SLP and your specialty in stuttering, um, just a little bit about you. Sure, absolutely. Um, I've been a practicing clinician for over 30 years now. I got my CCC on February 1 of 1992. Uh, and I've had a practice uh, ever since then working just with people who stutter, uh, both kids and adults. It's all I've ever done. It's all I know. Uh, you can't ask me any questions about any other area of the field because I'll have to just make stuff up. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but I've been very fortunate. Uh, I've only done stuttering work and that's why I got into the field. My background was in linguistics and psychology. Those were my undergraduate degrees. Uh, and I was looking for something where I could study uh, language uh, and how people learn and understand and process language and study people, linguistics and psychology. Uh, and stuttering sits at a very interesting intersection of those two areas of research, as well as many others, neuroscience, cognitive science, motor control, uh, a whole bunch of other areas that are also interesting. But that's how I got interested in stuttering in the first place. Um, I got family history of stuttering as well. My grandfather stuttered, uh, my uncle stuttered. So I have um, a, a personal connection, um, but I've just been always in this area and I've just been really lucky because the people that I've met, the people that I work with in the field are just uh, tremendously dedicated uh, people and um, passionate about this area of work. So uh, it's been just a fortunate career for me to be able to work in this area. Awesome. Absolutely. So can you talk to us a little bit about stuttering therapy resources and this like amazing wealth of knowledge that you have um, founded and really got the ball rolling? Because I feel like when SLPs go to start, whether it's like evaluating or treatment or whatever, that's one of the main go-tos I'm like always giving to my colleagues because I feel like there's this stigma. And I think we'll talk about that a little bit later, but a lot of times if SLPs aren't familiar with fluency, stuttering, cluttering, whatever it may be, they're like, they don't want to do it, go near it. So can you talk to us yeah. a little bit about stuttering therapy resources? You bet. Um, and indeed, many clinicians just aren't comfortable with stuttering. And that's something that that I want to change. And I think we can. Little by little, we can change that. Uh, and thank you for sending folks to Stuttering Therapy Resources. I appreciate it greatly. Uh, so STR was started about 12 years ago. Uh, and the way it started is this. Nina Reeves, uh, my business partner, and I have been writing together for over 20 years now. We wrote our first book. Uh, uh, let's see. I won't be able to get the math right, but it was a while ago now. Um, and that book did well. It was on the market for a while and, and we wanted to do more. We were getting ready to write more books and, and um, discovered that we wanted to have the opportunity to um, 
decide our own future uh, in terms of, you know, how we were going to develop our materials, how we would market them, what we would charge for them, um, how often we would update them and, and change them and, and what projects we wanted to work on. Because uh, for us, stuttering is our passion. It's all both of us, at, you know, work on. Well, Nina has broader expertise than I do. I'm really only stuttering. She she can do a lot more than that. Um, but we decided one day that we could either continue to publish books with other publishing companies, as we had done, or we could engage in a pretty steep learning curve and learn how to do publishing ourselves to allow us to maintain that creative control. And it's just been a terrific, terrific decision for us because um, we've loved doing it. Stuttering Therapy Resources is is a family company. It's something that we do, Nina and I do on the side, uh, but there's four people. Well, there's five people now involved in, in Stuttering Therapy Resources. It's Nina and me. We write the books and develop the materials. Uh, Nina does everything on social media or Facebook and especially Instagram, uh, and she's just terrific at putting stuff up there about helping speech language pathologists become more comfortable with stuttering. Uh, and then her husband, Lee Reeves, uh, he was once uh, the chairman of the board of directors of the National Stuttering Association, very well known in stuttering self-help. Uh, he was a very successful veterinarian, a businessman, uh, and he enjoys doing the, the books, the accounting for the books. So we write the books. He does the books. And uh, my wife, Virginia, put me through my Ph.D. Uh, doing design and layout. Uh, for publishing company. So she knows how to make books. Uh, so we write the books, he does the books, and she makes them books. Uh, she was also a, a, an educator. She was a classroom teacher for many years. Uh, and so she's a good writer as well. Uh, so the four of us are the, the primary ones. We do STR. We each have our little role to play. Uh, our daughter, Eleanor, uh, also now works with us, and she uh, does uh, entering POs and orders. We're just so grateful that we get orders from school districts, from individual clinicians every single day. Uh, and so she helps with the business end of things because we simply can't keep up with it all. Oh, uh, sure. And has played out e even better than we possibly could have dreamed because our goal is to help speech language pathologists help people who stutter. Uh, we've got the website, Stuttering Therapy Research com where we put up really whatever's on our mind. We have blog posts, we have free handouts, we do videos. And then of course we sell the materials. We have our books, we have the Oasis uh, and a lot more uh, in the pipeline, just a ton of new things in the next uh, little bit that we'll have coming out. So it's been, it's been a lot of fun. I mean, a lot of fun, big learning curve up front, like how do you print postage using media mail? We didn't, you know, we didn't know that when we started out, yeah. uh, you know, how do you find a printer? Uh, right. You know, how do you bind a book? All of that stuff. Uh, now we got the basics down and we get to be having a lot of fun. Yeah. That's amazing. I had no idea it was such a family run business. That's incredible. Yeah. And I can say truly, I, I think Stuttering Therapy Resources is the first thing that we tell people to look at because it is so user-friendly and it's it's so understood, not just by SLPs, but parents too. So I thank you for that. I think it's a wonderful, well, wonderful resource. Um, I appreciate that greatly. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I, both Rachel and I would love to pick your brain a little bit about kind of how the the evaluation and treatment of stuttering as a whole is changing, especially right now. I feel like we are really in the thick of it in the past, yeah. like five to 10 years, um, yeah, but especially absolutely. right now. Um, can you talk to us a little bit? And I know that's a big question, but kind of some big changes that you've seen lately. 
Absolutely. And it's a terrific question. Um, it's something that I've thought a lot about both in my research. Uh, I guess I didn't mention my day job uh, is I'm a professor <laughs> at Michigan <laughs> State University. So yes. that's what I, I spend yeah, my time on. When you said on. that was your side job, I was like, yeah. whoa, whoa, whoa. That's yeah. a really big side job. Yeah. <laughs> it is a big side job. Yeah. I have a few, a few side projects. There's that. And I do workshops. Uh, I've done about 800 uh, full day and half day workshops around oh the world uh, on stuttering therapy. And, uh, but no, my day job is I'm a professor and I do research. I have an NIH funded uh, grant and an NSF funded grant. So I've got two big federal grants where I work on understanding stuttering and understanding how we assess stuttering. So my NIH grant specifically is focused on the variability of stuttering and how that affects not only people's experience of living with the condition, but from a clinical perspective, how we assess it. Because just as you mentioned, we are in a period of change and good change, in my opinion, on how we view and assess stuttering. Uh, historically, and sadly, in many places today, still, stuttering is assessed primarily based on observable disfluencies. How many stutters a, uh, an, an observer can notice in a person's speech. And the presumption is that if a person exhibits more observable stutters, then that's more of an issue than if they exhibit fewer observable stutters. But that's all from the perspective of the observer, of what a person can see or hear in somebody else's speech. And that's how stuttering has been primarily defined forever, based on what others view. Um, but we're changing that. That That is a, a presumption that I think is inaccurate. I think it's wrong to view stuttering through the lens of the listener. And more and more, we are able to uh, encourage people to view stuttering through the lens of the speaker. What is the person who stutters experiencing? It's kind of an odd thing because um, most of the literature in our field is focused on listener perspectives. More and more, though, we have the opportunity to ask people who stutter, what are you experiencing? How does stuttering affect your life? Uh, and that's what led to that. That endeavor is what led to the development of the Oasis. I started working on that. It's the overall assessment of the speaker's experience of stuttering uh, with my friend and colleague, Bob Quiesel, uh 20 years ago, more than that now. Um, we wanted to do treatment outcomes research. We wanted to know what treatment works. And in order to do that, you've got to know how you're defining works. And in order to define works, you got to be able to ask, well, works for whom? And most of the research was focused on what works for listeners. That is what makes stuttering less apparent to others. And that's not what is the interesting question for the perspective of people who stutter. So we started developing a framework for understanding stuttering from the perspective of people who stutter, uh, started talking about assessing the entire experience of stuttering. That's what led to the development of the OASIS and today where we can say to people really with quite a bit of confidence, what matters to people who stutter is not how much they might ex exhibit an observable disruption in speech. It's how much they perceive their speech to be out of their control and how much that affects their lives. Well, the Oasis helps us measure how much that affects their lives. And that's now uh, the Oasis was first published in 2004. So we're coming up on the, the 20th, uh, sorry, 2006. 
uh, but we're still coming up on the 20th anniversary of the or of the work on the Oasis. Um, but what we're also working on now is it's also relevant how much people feel stuck. And people are always interested in understanding the severity of an experience or of a condition, not just that listeners want to rate severity, speech language pathologists want to rate severity, but speakers themselves have an interest in how their severity compares to others. People are, you know, they ask, how bad is it? How do I compare to others? Well, um, so I'm also working on a new tool. This will be out uh, later this year or early next year. That is a severity assessment, but it's a speaker-based severity assessment, not a listener-based severity assessment. Because, uh, and I, you talked about this actually on your podcast last year when you did one about stuttering. Yeah. Uh, you were talking about, you know, how how much should we use a, a severity rating? Yeah. Um it was framed in terms of, you know, how often do you do an SSI or something like that? Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, people, people feel uncomfortable letting that go. And I totally get that. I mm -hmm. absolutely understand. Mm -hmm. We still want to be able to do something about severity. Uh, and so what I'm presently calling the a comprehensive assessment of stuttering severity or a self-rating of stuttering severity, uh, that's a, a tool I've been working on for the last few years mm -hmm. so that we can add to the OASIS, which is adverse impact. Mm -hmm also severity in the moment yeah. how stuck does a person feel how often do they feel stuck how much do they struggle in that moment of being stuck because some stucks if you'll forgive the the informal language some stutters are, are you know little ones people tell you that oh that was just a little one some are bigger and um it may sound the same. It may look the same to a listener because we don't have access to that internal experience, mm -hmm. but people who stutter do. And I think that that's, that's an important part of the equation. So when we talk about assessment, the real shift, and I think this is happening nicely, is away from listener-based measures towards speaker-based measures. Mm -hmm. uh, the OASIS helps us do that. It's a standardized measure. People use it for qualifying children for therapy. They use it for submitting to insurance companies and for documentation. But there is also that piece of severity that we want to get at. And so that's what the new, the new work has been focused on. That's amazing. I'm so excited. <laughs> I'm so excited to see that. I'm also so honored that you listened to our podcast. Oh yeah. 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 yeah absolutely. <laughs> now I'll be honest. I had to select the stuttering episodes because yeah, that's no, our, and the stuttering one and right. the stuttering one too, but that's, that's what <laughs> that's I know. Okay. So Right. Of course. <laughs> Maybe if I listen to other stuff, I'd know more, but I only right. know stuttering. So right. no, absolutely. <laughs> Um, okay, one thing I wanted to ask you to talk about, because I listened to you speak on it, not uh, this past March at the Michigan Speech Language Hearing Conference, but last March, um, in one did of your- counseling? Did I do counseling last year? Mm, you or did bullying last year? Yeah, counseling. okay, great. Yep. Okay, but great. you were talking about treatment specifically. Mm -hmm. And one thing you said, and I know this is going to like blow everyone's mind, but when I listened to you say it, I was like, oh my gosh, duh. You said for treatment with children, we need to get away from using terms like bumpy speech, oh, yeah. smooth speech and whatnot. So can you talk to us a little bit about that and like what your recommendation is and terms that you would prefer clinicians to use and why? You bet. Great yeah. question. Um, so there's one thing I want to say as I dive into this, my own thinking 
has evolved over the years. I don't do things the way I did 20 years ago or 10 years ago, or in many cases, even two years ago. My own thinking, my own use of language has been evolving as I try to evaluate everything to make sure that I'm using language that's supportive of the experiences of people who stutter, that's anti-ableist for part, but also accessible. So you will rarely hear me, for example, talk about disorders these days. Although it is true that some people who stutter do experience a disorder, a problem in their lives. They don't all. And stuttering is not inherently a disorder. I view it as a difference. Nina coined the term verbal diversity as a way of viewing stuttering. You hear it all over the place these days. But I remember the morning Nina texted me. She, I think she said she was blow drying her hair and this thing popped into her mind. Hey, what if we talk about stuttering as verbal diversity? And she texted me right away. Yes, yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And so that is part of the change that I've been undergoing. Now to the issue that you brought up specifically. Yeah, what about bumpy speech, smooth speech, snail speech, sailboat speech, all these things? You know, they're all euphemisms. And I get that. I understand. Because for a long time in our field, it was viewed as, as taboo or inappropriate to say the S word, to say stutter. Okay. And I know where, where it came from. It came from this fear about causing people to feel bad about their speech. But that only computes if we view the word stutter as inherently bad. That's the ableist nature of our old views. People viewed the word stutter and the experience of stuttering as a bad thing from the beginning. And we can, we need to reevaluate that. Stutter is not necessarily a bad thing. It's not a bad word to say. It's not a bad thing to do or to have or to be. And so we need to push back against that. So we no longer need euphemisms if we can use the word stutter. But then the second layer of that, and the reason that I've shifted myself away from saying things like bumpy speech as a default, is because it's in and of itself an analogy. It's not a direct translation of how speech is. When you ask people who stutter how they experience the moment of stuttering, uh, even kids, they'll talk about being stuck. They'll talk about knowing what they want to say and moving along just fine in their speech and then having a moment when they're stuck, when they know what they want to say, but in that moment can't say it the way they want to. And so I want to describe stuttering using the words that they use to describe stuttering. Now, bumpy, okay, fine. Bumpy, but 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 bumpy. I kind of get that. We used to, in fact, in some of my writing, we introduce um, analogies like going over railroad tracks when you're riding in the car. But even so, that's that's a metaphor for stuttering. It's not actually what people who stutter describe stuttering as being like. So this is not to say that saying bumpy speech is bad. It's not harmful. It's just not always clear, especially to a three and four year old, what it means. If we want to use words like bumpy. We just have to explain what it means. We have to make that analogy real. We could say, oh, yes, sometimes m 
my speech feels like it might be bumpy, like when I'm going over the railroad tracks in the car, or if I'm riding a horse and the horse is bumpy, or something like that. Uh, here in Michigan, though, it's real easy to use the driving along and the road is bumpy because <laughs> our roads are bumpy and the kids get that. Okay. Yes, yes. Um, but it's an analogy. And I, A, we don't need the analogy. We can just talk about being stuck. Um, but B, then smooth speech. What does what smooth mean? Speech is not inherently smooth. The mouth moves up and down. The cadence moves up and down. Uh, I've been on a sailboat. Sailboats are not always smooth. There's nothing smooth about sailboats. And snails? Snails are slow. They're sticky. They're gross. I, I don't know. So I, I, I do use a lot of analogies and metaphors. It's not that I don't like that. It's just that we've got to make them concrete because a three-year-old is not going to say, oh yeah, sailboat. That means, well, what does it mean? It means without observable stuttering. That, that doesn't really help. So I try to be very concrete in my language. I try to use language that relates directly to what people who stutter report as they're experiencing. Flow is, is something that people talk about. So I'll talk about flow. Um, smoothness is something that people will talk about. As long as I'm real clear about what I mean by smoothness, uh, you know, there's smooth peanut butter and there's crunchy peanut butter. Um, we can talk about, we can use metaphors and analogies um, and, and that's helpful, but I just want to make sure that we're always clear on what we mean. And I don't want to do it because I'm afraid to say the S word. And I don't want to teach the child that they shouldn't say stutter or be open about stuttering. And I don't want the parents to feel that the S word is inherently bad because it's not, it's a characteristic. It's a descriptor. Right. Absolutely. And I think that's, I think that's the big, another big shift going back to our other question of the world of speech therapy too, is trying to also be comfortable saying stuttering to especially Absolutely. children. And I yeah. think, I think that's hard. And I, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but like for parents who come in, because I've had parents do this too, where, where they'll come in and say, oh, we don't want you to We don't want to use stutter. that word. Yeah. Absolutely. Or like, yes. oh, if we're going to talk about it, let's come out here, like away from or, him. Or I've seen they'll call, they have no problem calling it like a fluency disorder. Right. Right. But they will not. Yeah. yeah. Like for yeah. whatever reason, the stigma that's around that word. Yeah. Right. But, so it, how do you navigate that? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so our history in our field, right, with a, the diagnosogenic theory of Wendell Johnson, uh, the idea, this isn't exactly what Johnson said, but it's what people took him to say, is if you talked about stuttering, you would cause the child to become self-conscious and that would make them stutter, right? That's not what he said, but that's kind of how people took it. People took it as you shouldn't talk about stuttering in front of the child. You shouldn't name it stuttering because that will that because it's inherently bad and that will cause them to feel bad, right? That was the underlying assumption. That again, today we're breaking away from that. Mm -hmm. But there are generations of speech language pathologists, including me, I was taught, we used to always do the parent education sessions without the child in the room. We used to go so far as to hire graduate students to keep the little child busy so that we could talk to the parent. And we used to always use euphemisms, right? Um, 
we used to say when that thing happens or, or whatever. And, and what do children learn from that? Except that there's something going on that's pretty bad, right? Like Woody something Stark, to be ashamed of. Something to be ashamed of. Exactly right. Uh, Woody Starkweather talked about a conspiracy of silence that people reported feeling. Um, uh, Courtney Bird's team just recently published a paper showing that clinicians are uncomfortable using the word stutter. Uh, and and we want to move away from that. So how do I navigate it when parents come in? Because they do. They'll come and they say, well, we haven't called it that. We read that we weren't supposed to because online you can still see a lot of diagnosogenic echoes of yeah. the past. And I, I'm very direct with them. I tell them, absolutely. Historically, our field thought that we had to be careful about talking about stuttering in front of children. The idea was that if children began to feel self-conscious, that would make their stuttering more severe. Notice I, I never use the word worse, right? That's part of the language that, that we've got to uh, be aware of. So, and I say that was where our field was, but over the last couple of decades, we've learned that that's not true. Now, unfortunately, the information on the internet is lagging what we know today. So I, ha I know that you read this online. I know you see it in booklets from some of the organizations. I understand where the fear comes from, but we've learned that we can let that go. We don't have to be afraid of talking about stuttering. And in fact, I would much rather have the child there in the room with me, hearing not just my use of words like stuttering and stuck and sometimes having difficulty talking or saying what you want to say. I want them to hear my tone of voice, which is open, not fearful. It's nonchalant. It's accepting, just like I might talk about, I use the same tone of voice when I'm talking about things they're interested in, as I do when I talk about their stuttering. I'll use the same tone of voice when I ask them what pets they have or what pets they'd like to have, as I do the, oh, you know what, and sometimes when kids are talking, they get stuck a bit. It's just part of learning. And so I want the child to pick up on the words and the attitude. I want the parents and caregivers to pick up on the words and the attitude. So I start by acknowledging that the fear, it's real. I, we understand where it came from and how it developed, but also thankfully our field has advanced. Science moves us on. And I love that about our field. I mean, if we were still doing the same thing that we did 20 years ago, right. that would be a problem. Now, sadly, there are many clinicians out there who are doing the same thing that the field did 20 years ago. And that's part of why I spend my days trying to help clinicians move away from that. Right. Because what I've, what I've seen, I haven't discovered this, lots of people know this, but what I've observed over the years is that many good clinicians have figured this out on their own. They just didn't know that it was okay. Yeah. They felt like, right. you know, oh, I, I learned in school, I wasn't supposed to talk about it. Uh, and they just need a little permission mm -hmm. to say, no, no, you're right. Trust your instinct here. Okay. Stuttering is something that we don't have to fear. And in fact, the more we can convey that it's not something to fear, the more the students or children will learn, the more the caregivers and families will learn, mm -hmm. and the more open we can be toward moving to a place where we view stuttering as a characteristic of some, stutter, of, of some people's speech rather than being necessarily a problem or a disorder or something atypical or all of those ableist terms that we'd like to move away from. Right. Absolutely. And I love that you made the point about giving clinicians the permission, because I think that's 
a huge piece of like the counseling that we're moving towards in stuttering treatment too. I think a lot of, a lot of my graduate clinicians feel the same way too. They're like, are we allowed to be talking this much about our feelings? Like, isn't that a counselor or psychologist job? Like, should we just refer them? And I think that question always comes up is, are we, is it within our scope? Are we licensed to do those kind of practices? So can you speak on that? You bet. I'll start off with saying the answer is an unequivocal yes. Mm-hmm. Now, here's the, the justification for that. I encourage anybody who's uncertain about our scope of practice to read the ASHA scope of practice document, because mm-hmm. that's the document that defines our job as speech language pathologists. And in that document, it says that our job is to work with the reactions that people have to their communication disorders and differences, right? The reactions, the the emotional reactions, the difficulties they have in coping, that is squarely within our scope of practice. And all of the tools and methods that are available to counseling psychologists Mm -hmm. are also available to us, provided that we're using them in the realm of communication and swallowing. We wouldn't use them in other domains. That is that is for other professionals. But if they're related to communication, if they're related to a person's coping with stuttering, well, that's our scope of practice. And I don't want to give that over to somebody else who doesn't understand stuttering, right? What we need to do is we need to get more experience and more comfort with the tools that counselors use. Those are available to us and we can do that. We can do that. Yeah, oh. absolutely. I feel like in my experience, at least with coworkers or graduate students or whomever it may be, there's this, like, I don't know if it's a fear or Mm -hmm. like what was instilled in you in graduate school, but a lot of people go back to like, where's the data for the session? Mm -hmm. Can Mm -hmm. I bill for this? What am I going to write? Is it going to be, you know, like, feel like for that reason alone, people tend to steer away from or are uncertain of the counseling aspect. Would you agree with that? It's one of the reasons. And and, and the reason they say that that, that it's rooted in the fact that, that they don't yet understand what counseling involves. So often I'll hear people say, so we're just talking to them. One of my least favorite words in the English language is the word just, because what it does is it dismisses a whole profession's worth of skills and strategies and knowledge. So let's say we are helping a student come to terms with their stuttering. Well, that's not just talking to them. We're actually using strategies to do that. We're using tools as as counseling speech language pathologists in order to achieve that. For example, the tools that are used in cognitive behavior therapy involve identifying feared thoughts or or worried thoughts, right? Well, a very easy benchmark to write might be the child will identify three worried thoughts about stuttering. That's easy to write. It's real easy to do in therapy and it's real easy to measure. So I've got my documentation and my measurement right there. If the child only identified two worried thoughts about stuttering, he's 67% of the way toward his goal for that session. And I can keep session data in the exact same way that I would have kept session data on number of correct articulation productions, right? In fact, it's it's much easier than that uh, because you know if you're doing if you're doing our tick and you want to get you know 50 accurate S productions, 
oh, you know, that that's hard and it's a little bit boring. Don't yeah. tell anybody, but it's only trials. Yeah, <laughs> yes, exactly. But here, so I could say, all right, my goal for this session is the child is going to explore alternative responses when somebody's picking on him. And I'd like to do a brainstorm activity in which the child identifies 10 possible alternative responses. Well, if he's done eight of them, he's 80% of the way toward that goal. It's easily documented. It's directly in line with what IDEA asks us to do if we're in a school system. And it's tied very closely to what's relevant to the child's life. So that's why I like that even better than, than percent correct responses, because that's not really tied to functional communication, but a child who knows how to respond when he's being bullied, well, that is directly tied to Mm -hmm. functional communication and to goal, real world goals. Mm -hmm. So you're absolutely right that, that students, uh, sorry, that clinicians are often a little reluctant to write that. Mm -hmm. It's what they need. uh, What they need there is just a little tweak of how they're viewing their goals. And they'll find that all those skills that they've already got for goal writing, they apply just as well. They just didn't didn't see that they could do it about these topics as well. Once they see that, IEPs become a million times easier and a million times more more relevant to the child's life. Which is what's what it should be, right? Like directly tailored to them, how to benefit them versus exactly. being so stuck on a number for sure. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and we can still get numbers for those who like numbers. We can yeah. still apply numbers to it. Uh, it's just a different kind of number. Yes, sure. Um, okay. So the, I think the last thing we have for you, and I mentioned it um, a little bit earlier, but any advice that you would have for an SLP that is hesitant to work with someone who stutters, what, what would you give them for their toolbox or encourage them to do or how to approach it? Excellent. I love that question. Um, The first answer I would give people, and this I learned from Nina, uh, is I would want to remind them that they've already got really most of the skills that they need. Specifically, they're already good at listening. They're already good at developing uh, a rapport and therapeutic alliance. They're already good at writing goals and taking data and all of that. And we just need a little tweak on how they view that stuff. They're already good at making sessions interesting. They're already good at being creative. They're already good at um, responding and being with their clients. So many of the skills that clinicians need, they've already got. Okay. We can add stuff to that though, to help them feel more comfortable specifically with stuttering. And that is to spend a little bit of time seeking to understand the speaker's experience of stuttering, to ask their school age clients or their teens or their adults, what's stuttering like for you? I don't want to talk. I'm not asking about the repetition or the prolongation of the block or things like that. I mean, what's it like for you to live as a person who stutters and and listen to those stories and hear their experiences and develop that empathy that goes with a better understanding of their lives. And that's what helps clinicians overcome that discomfort because they'll realize once once they stop viewing stuttering as this, this bad thing that's got to be eliminated, they'll realize that, oh yeah, our task here is to help people live a little bit more easily alongside their stuttering, to be able to say what they want to say, regardless of whether or not they stutter, to do what they want to do, to be who they want to be. They don't have to eliminate a part of who they are. They have maybe had some difficulty being comfortable with that part of themselves. And boy, we can really help them with that. 
Another thing I'd want to emphasize is that last point is we can make a tremendous difference in the lives of people who stutter. Too often I hear clinicians say, well, if we can't cure their stuttering, what good are we doing them anyway? And again, that's a focus on just the observable, right? We can't cure a lot of things in our field and in other fields, but we can still help people live more easily, help them achieve their goals. Again, say what they want to say, do what they want to do, be who they want to be. And when people get that message in their minds, when clinicians understand that they can, they can really help, then stuttering goes from being something scary to treat to being something really exciting to treat. Uh, I find, again, it's all I know, but I find the greatest sense of hope and optimism when I'm working with my students, because right now they come to me because they're in a place where they're having trouble being who they are and being who they want to be. But as a result of our conversations and the steps and the techniques and the things that we go through in therapy, they get to the point where they can do the things that they want to do and be the person they want to be. That's magnificent. What a what a gift th that we can give to them and that we can give to ourselves because it's rewarding for us as well. Um, so that's what I'd want them to know. And yes, there are some skills and there are some, some techniques that, that clinicians can learn to do that. That's why Nina and I write books. That's why we, you know, that's why we do that stuff because there's some technical aspect of that. But the technical aspect follows from that better understanding of people who stutter and of their lives. It follows from that better understanding of ourselves as clinicians and where our own strengths lie. In fact, that's what our school aid stuttering therapy book starts with. It's understanding stuttering and understanding ourselves uh, because those are the, 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 the building blocks for becoming a great stuttering therapist. And I am of the firm belief that every speech language pathologist can be a great stuttering therapist. And I was going to say, if anybody listening hasn't checked your guys's books out, um, that school age stuttering therapy, the practical guide was what really drove me into feeling as confident as I feel with working with people who stutter truly. I mean, I, awesome. I can't you. thank you enough because it's wonderful. It really gives you, I said before, it's user-friendly and it's, it's understood and it's easy to implement, you know, it's, it's wonderful. And I think that that's a great place for clinicians who aren't sure or feeling a little bit um, nervous about working with people who stutter should start. Oh, magnificent. Thank you so much for that. Absolutely. I appreciate it. Well, Scott, thank you for coming on here. We've loved everything you've had to say, um, and we appreciate the work you do so much. Well, thank you. It's been great fun to talk with you. I look forward to doing it again. I appreciate Absolutely. the work that you're doing. Uh, like I said, I've listened to your podcast, and I enjoy how accessible you're making uh, everything for people who are listening. So uh, it's just terrific. Uh, and I love partnerships like this because we all share this same passion of trying to make things a bit easier, not just for our clients who stutter or, or you know, who, ha who have other conditions, uh, but for our clinicians. Uh, so and our students, you know, our graduate students and all. Yes. So uh, it's great fun to work with folks in doing that. So thank yes. you. Yes, absolutely. Thanks. Thanks. All right, guys, thank you so much for listening. You can find me, Rachel, on Instagram at supersweetspeech or on my website, speechissupersweet.com. And you can find me, Claire, on Instagram at kindly underscore speech or on Facebook on kindly speech. And then you can email Rachel and I, if you have any questions or concerns, we are let's talk about speech podcast at gmail.com. Thanks.